Good morning. The balcony is open. Woo! All of you who love to be as far back as possible are now back in your comfort zone. It's great news for many of you. Um, I want to highlight something as well. We have a men's retreat coming up at the end of the month. Anybody here a man? Is anyone here a man? I see four hands. It's concerning. We have a men's retreat. Here's, here's the vision for this. We actually want all the men of Central to come. Any, any young men in the room? All right. I'll accept that. Um, any young men here that would love to see some older men there? Man, you guys are not participating at all. I re- I'll share from my heart then. You guys are not being helpful to my cause. I would love to see our, our young men, our middle-aged men, and our older men. Put yourself in whatever category you'd like. Love to see you there. We've made this as accessible as possible. It's at Camp Stillwood, a beautiful retreat center. It's as as affordable as we could possibly make it. It's $99. The reason is is because we want every man of Central there. We're doing a 24-hour Friday night to Saturday night retreat, um, Bible-saturated, worship-filled, community-driven. Like We want to be able to spend more time than two and a half minutes talking to somebody in the foyer, connect, build relationships, have some depth there. This is the chance to do it. Go to bed at 3 a.m. We'll maybe have a, a 9 p.m. cabin as well. We'll figure that stuff out. But it's just a great opportunity to have some fun. Uh, we've got Sam Waddington coming. He's going to leave an adventurous excursion in the middle of the day on Saturday. We've just got a bunch of different stuff going on, and it's going to be a great weekend. So Steve Clausen, one of our men's ministry uh, volunteers, is ha- at a table in the foyer. These are available there. You can also just go on the website and register there in one shot. Um, really encourage you to do that. Our hope is for uh, all the men of, of Chilliwack and Agassiz campuses to be there for that. The second thing I'd like to say quickly before we get into our our text this morning is that we're starting a new series. And uh, the new series is called, I'm I'm not very good at at titling sermons yet, but it's called What Is, fill in the blank. What is, we're starting this morning with what is the church? Next week we're going to look at what is church membership or what we call ministry partnership. What is it? And, and, And underneath that, why does it matter? What is the church? What is church membership? What is a Christian? What is prayer? What is heaven? What is the second coming of Christ? Um, We're going to look at at these uh, questions in the coming weeks. We want to do a couple things. If you're new to the faith or if you're exploring the faith of Christianity, this will be a really helpful series for you this fall. If you've been a Christian for a really long time, this is going to be a really helpful series for you this fall. (laughs) Um, and, And one of the reasons I say that is what we really believe in here is is a couple of us get to preach and send you out, but, 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 but you're the preachers. We're going to look at what the royal priesthood... We're all priests. We're going to look at that this morning. We're all sent out, and, and when we're all equipped with the knowledge of what Christians believe prayer is, when we're all uh, equipped with knowing, because, because it's fresh in our minds, what heaven is, the beauty of heaven, it will, it, it will, it will uh, permeate through our conversations. We'll be better informed to share with our neighbors, share with our friends, the things we truly believe. So I think it's going to be a great fall. We're going to start the series now. Uh, Pastor Eldon is in Agassiz preaching on what is the church as well uh, as we speak. So I thought maybe the best way to start, this is my thinking, I like to take negative spins sometimes, Let's talk about what the church is not. Let's start there. Let's start with what the church is not. Here's a classic. The church is not a building. 
It's a good thing. It's a helpful thing. We're going to look in Acts chapter 2 at the Christians who gathered in the temple courts. It was a space large enough that over 3,000 Christians could gather at one time. To have a space for a corporate worship gathering is critical and important. So a building is absolutely helpful, but it certainly isn't what the church is. The church is not solitude in creation or nature. Uh, I've heard this from time to time, you probably have as well, that some people like to just go on a hike or spend time in nature on a Sunday morning and they may gaze, gaze out at the beauty and say, ah, see, this is my church. But it is not church. It's a beautiful thing. It actually inherently says something of the nature of God and His glory. But it's not church. Listening to a preacher on a podcast, preaching to a church... But listening to it in a podcast is not church. It's a good thing. It can be edifying. But it's not church. Where a group of friends just happen to gather together in a living room, get talking about Jesus, um, get into the Word, even that is not inherently church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. Our life groups are an extension of that. When our life groups officially gather as a ministry of central life groups gathering in living rooms, that certainly is church. But if you happen upon a setting where you open up the Word and pray together and spend time, it's not the church, but it is a wonderfully good thing. Parachurch ministries like World Vision or Power to Change or Ruth and Naomi's, it's not church. It's not a church. Here's, here's maybe one of the first indicators that any of these things are not a church. For a church, first of all, to be a church, it must consider itself a church. Creation doesn't consider itself a church. Ruth and Naomi's does not consider itself to be a church. It's a beautiful ministry to our, the neediest people in our community, and we have the opportunity to serve in it. But it is not a church. It doesn't claim to be. The New Testament refers to the church in two ways. The universal church, the universal church, uh, all believers for all time, the universal church. The New Testament describes the church that way in a number of places. And the local church, regional or locally city church, small gatherings. That is the way that the New Testament refers to the church in those two ways. The church is important. The church is necessary, not optional. Cyprian in his treatise on the unity of the church said, He who forsakes the church of Christ cannot attain to the rewards of Christ. He is a stranger. He is profane. He is an enemy. He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. But in this day, in this time, I mean, I hear it. I know you hear it. Many of you feel it. Yeah, I love Jesus, but you know, the church is messy. I can do it better on my own, or I don't need it. Absolutely not true. So we are going to look at what the church is in four ways this morning. They won't all come up now because there's sub-points to them, but I'll just say them to you. We're going to look at the marks of the church, the nature of the church the function of the church, and the witness of the church. It's marks, it's nature, it's function, and it's witness. So, we've got a lot of work to do, and we want to go to a barbecue, so I, I, I have promised to do this swiftly. 
So let's pray to that end as well. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gathered church this morning. I love it. I praise you for this local body of believers, Lord. I thank you too, God, that we are on the cusp of a new ministry season here. Youth groups will begin women's and men's ministries, our life groups, so many vibrant ministries in this place. A lot of our outreach ministries begin in these coming weeks. And Lord, we we gather all together here this morning to ask that you would move mightily among us here and now and in this season to come. Lord, I pray for this church's flourishing. I pray that we would grow deeper in our love for your word. And as we do, I know we will grow deeper in our love and affection for each other. And our love and desire to see people who don't know you come to know you. All of those things flow from knowing you, from loving your word, from gathering as a body of believers and uh, encouraging each other in the faith. So Lord, I pray that as we we, we, we talk to that end this morning as I get to preach from your word to that end, that you would be glorified and your church would be strengthened. We love you. Love this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the marks of the church. This is, the marks of the church really only became a thing at the time of the Reformation uh, because um, the Catholic church said, we are the true church, full stop. Um, uh, the Catholic Church believing Peter was the first pope, and there was a line to the, you know, every, in every season since then that there was a pope who was from that line, and therefore the Catholic Church was the true church, and therefore that was what the church was. And yet the Reformation time period, guys like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin were these men that looked around and looked at some of the local Catholic Church congregations and said, wait a minute. It's missing some core things, just in some of the local settings, but it, 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 was, uh, it was becoming systemic at this particular time, some of the, the negative attributes of what was happening in the Catholic Church in that time, and they were looking around and saying, no, wait, some of these gatherings, some of these places are not the church. This is not a church. And so they began to ask the question, well, what is a church? What are the marks of a church? And they really... Um, boiled it down to two, and those have stood the test of time in the Protestant tradition, and they are this, the Word of God rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered. The Word of God proclaimed, preached, authentically and truly. The Word of God, the Scriptures, preached mightily with power. That is mark number one of the church and mark number two of the church, although I'm not sure there's a particular order, the sacraments of the church, meaning baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper. And, 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 and quickly after that, though, and, but many people would include it in the sacraments, is um, the practice of discipline. It's a fun one. But people would say that it, it actually ties into the right administration of the sacraments. That believers, when they confess their faith, they, in obedience, showing their obedience, showing their faith in Jesus, get baptized. So that is a mark of a a true believer, is that they will be obedient in that and and get baptized. And secondly, um, you only take communion if you're in right standing, and if if you're a part of the local church, we'll get into that more next week. And so you'll only take communion. So it it in itself is is a discipline tool that people should bypass the cup and the bread if they're not in right standing, if their lives 
don't measure. And so the word of God rightly preached and the sacraments rightly administered are these marks. I mean, I am a, I am a man, I'm, I'm sure you know that, if you know me, who loves the preaching of God's word. And this is one of my favorite stories I think I've ever heard about the preaching of God's word. And it's about an elderly man named Luke Short. Mr. Short was sitting under a hedge in Virginia when he happened to remember a sermon he had once pre- uh, he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. As he recalled the sermon, he asked God to forgive his sins right then and there through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Short lived for three more years, and when he died, the following words were inscribed on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106 The sermon that old Mr. Short remembered had been preached 85 years earlier back in England. Nearly a century passed between Flavel's sermon and Short's conversion, between the sowing, the preaching, and the reaping, the believing, and coming to faith. Sooner or later, by God's grace, faithful work always has its reward. What I love about that is here's our part. We preach the word. And we'll see more later in this sermon that, that God does the rest. But the marks of an authentic church are this. Firstly, that they consider themselves to be a church. And the marks are the preaching of the gospel, that the gospel is proclaimed and baptism and communion are included. Now we'll get to uh, the nature of the church. And the text I'd like us to look at is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. This is the nature of the church, not just individual Christians, but the nature of the church. Look what it says. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the three subheadings are simply this, right out of the text. The nature of the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Chosen. Oh, that's a hot-button word. But I want you to hear for a moment John chapter 6, verse 44. I think we can all agree on this. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to the Father Come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is a wooing that the Lord does to every believer that our hardened hearts even get softened in the first place is a drawing of our Savior. We are chosen as a race. It's an interesting... Interesting choice of words, a chosen race, but it's, it's a unique race in that it's a, a race like no other. Color is no object. Black, white, brown is not in focus here, but it's this chosen new race from all races gathered. So what is the chosen race? Well, it's the church. It's unlike any other. See, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So if your heart is drawn to him, give him praise. It's all grace. The thing about the the church as a chosen race is it's not like all other races uh, become extinct or um, cease to exist. Our diversity and cultural identity is beautiful. 
But our identity in Christ as Christian and as church is supremely beautiful. We are a chosen race. That is part of our nature as the church. We are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, the priests came from the tribe of Levi and made sin offerings and, and, and ministered to God on behalf of the people. Um, from, we were just talking about the Joseph series, and here's this son, not a great son, by the way, of Jacob. His name was Levi. Well, later on, by God's grace, it was, it was from the tribe of Levi that these priests even came, but these priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But something changed when Jesus came. See, the priests had to go through such ritual cleansings. They would have to walk into baths and cleanse in a particular way and walk out. And all the way to the temple mount was, the, was this ritual after ritual. Why? Because we're sinful people before a holy God and so for a sinful priest even to offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people, he had to go through such cleansing because we're so unworthy to come before a holy, righteous God. And yet Jesus came as the great high priest, the true high priest, and lived a perfect spotless life. See, everybody was called to live according to the law, but no one could measure up. Enter Jesus, breaks into, um, into time, and, and what he does is he lives the perfectly, he follows the law perfectly. And then he chose to die for us, himself being the great high priest who gave the perfect sacrifice, his own perfect, spotless life, dying for our sins. But that's not the end of it. He was put in a tomb three days later. He rose again and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us, meaning we have a great high priest. And yet what Peter's saying is here that we are a royal priesthood. How is that? Well, it's all the gospel. See, Jesus says, take my righteousness upon you. Come to me and I will give you my perfection. Come to me and you get me. And when that happens, when we say, yes, Jesus, I accept you, and we come to faith, God the Father looks at us and doesn't see our sinful, blotted record. He sees the perfection of Christ. The great high priest has cleansed us. And therefore, we are a royal priesthood who ourselves can offer sacrifices to God, praise, who ourselves can come to him and bring him prayers. In Jesus Christ, we, the church, are a royal priesthood. Every one of us. Thirdly, we're a holy nation. Our chosenness in Christ makes us a new race from all people groups. And Jesus' perfection and forgiveness of sins that we receive when we come to him makes us holy. How are we made holy? Well, precisely what I just said. We get his righteousness. We get Christ. Therefore, it's not our holiness that gets us anywhere, but it's the holiness the perfection of Jesus given to us by confessing our sins, accepting him as Lord of our lives and living for his glory, we're considered holy because of what he is, has done and because of who he is. See, to be in Christ means to receive his record. We get his holiness and we have this in common. We are a community, a holy nation, a gathering, a people, and our corporate identity is Christ. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which is defined as an assembly or called out ones. The, re, the root meaning of church is of people. Therefore, our nature 
See, Peter's not talking individually. He's talking about us corporately. Our nature is that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what we are. It's not what you're attaining to be. It's not what you're trying to be like. In Jesus, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what you are. But to deny that or to live outside of that in your life is to actually deny your very nature. You're a priest. Choosing to do something that is unpriestly is just going against your nature, and yet you are a royal priest. You are a chosen race. To identify outside of it is your prerogative, and yet to accept Jesus means that you are a part of the chosen race, a royal priesthood and the holy nation. To live outside of that true identity you have, that nature that is yours in Jesus, is, is simply to act outside of who you are. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Our nature is that this is who we are. And that causes us to function in a particular way. So I want you to turn to chap- Acts chapter 2 if you have a Bible or you have a phone or an iPad and all those things. <laughs> We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. I love the beginning of Acts chapter 2. There's about 120 Christians. Peter goes out into the street. His sermon at Pentecost in the street in Jerusalem, 3,000 people come to Christ. Then comes Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were 120 in Acts chapter 1. They're 3,120 in Acts chapter 2. We find out in this passage that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the flourishing of the church. This is who these individuals as, and then as a body were in Christ. We just talked about their nature. This is how they began to function. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So what's the function of the church? How does the church function? Well, the four ways it lists in verse 42. The devotion to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Let's look at the first. The apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Well, it's the gospel. See, they had the whole Old Testament. And yet what the early church did was they followed the apostles' teaching. Well, what was it? Well, it was the actual happenings of the New Testament. It was the words of the apostles. What made the New Testament? Well, it got its credibility from the apostles. Well, how did the apostles have credibility? Well, the Spirit of God was was using the apostles to have many miraculous signs and wonders. So what they said and what they did 
actually matched and, and there was power to it all. And so the apostles' teaching is the gospel. See, there's all these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. What's Peter proclaiming? He's proclaiming who Jesus is. He's saying, you have been waiting for a Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years and he's come and his name is Jesus. That's what Peter's preaching. The apostles' teaching is the gospel and he's proclaiming it. And what the early church gave themselves to, what they devoted themselves to, was the apostles' teaching, was the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. It's the filling in the blanks of God's redemptive plan that is Jesus. A spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church that comes through the preaching and hearing of the word through Bible classes, life groups, men's, women's, youth, children's, ministries. All of these are rooted in the Word of God. All of these proclaim the good news of the Gospel. It must start there. And as we see that this early church devoted themselves to the Apostles' teachings, we also see that the Spirit of God moved mightily in many ways. But one thing we can be sure of they devoted themselves to God's word. They devoted themselves to the gospel. We are a gospel preaching church. We're also a gospel living church. Let's look at fellowship, this next word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. The word fellowship is really a, a word that, that means sharing in common, holding something in common. Christian fellowship, therefore, is common participation in God. It's that we, fellowship isn't fellowship if we just both have a cup of coffee and we're talking Seahawks the whole time. I'm sorry, it's not fellowship. You know when it starts to be fellowship? When he, we ask somebody how they're doing in the faith. When we encourage them with a word from the scriptures. When we, when we say, yeah, I saw the Seahawks game. They blew them out. They're going to do it all year long. Great. What can I pray for you for? That's when it turns into fellowship. Okay, are we clear? What makes us a community, we use fellowship so broadly. Let's tighten it up. Here's what fellowship is. It's when Jesus is the, the heartbeat of each of us. When Jesus is the heartbeat of our conversations. When the foyer conversations go from the surface to the faith to the real things, right? It's fellowship. So we're going to talk some Seahawks, we're going to talk some Canucks and how they're going to fail miserably this year and we're in for a bit of a time frame here of years. It's going to take a while. That's going to happen during the barbecue. We're going to get some of that. But my prayer is that we give ourselves also, we devote ourselves, as it says, like this first church did, devote ourselves to fellowship. You devoted to that? Can you go there with people as you talk. It's, it's having Jesus in common. You know, I used to say this to the young adult ministry we started here because we were an eclectic bunch. We were just really, we were just really, really different from each other. But the, the phrase I kept using with them is, we have Jesus in common and it's enough. See, if, if a group of people have softball in common, they might be able to play out on the field, play softball for a game, but they start to talk in the dugout and they have such differences and they go, well, I have no time for that guy. Having softball in common isn't enough. But let me assure you, having Jesus in common is enough. They don't have to like the same clothes as you. They don't have to watch the same TV shows as you. Be into sports or be into music and concerts. Having Jesus in common is enough. It's the one thing 
globally that is enough for the variety of people. If we find our unity in Jesus, we can be as varied and wonderful in ages, in social classes, in ethnicities, and we will be so unified if Jesus, if we fellowship. This word koinonia is based on, that's the fellowship word, it's based on having things in common. Koine Greek was the common Greek, was street Greek. It's what people would talk. It wasn't high Greek, it wasn't what was, but it was, it, it's the commonest. Koinonikos is, is used here as well because in verse 44 it starts to talk about generosity. All these words, having Jesus in common and generosity, same root word in Greek. Here's what verse 44 says. It jumps on this fellowship train and says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's, what, here's what's going on in this, this church in Acts. See, those who share in God, in Jesus, inevitably share in God's nature, which includes generosity. And they were generous with ongoing distribution with those around them. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, the difference between a communist and a Christian is this. A communist says, all yours is mine. Well, a Christian says, all mine is yours. And that is, the very, and that is a very different thing. The one is forgetting the other is forgiving. And these people were givers in a multitude of ways. See, they shared their goods wherever there was need because they were generous. They were generous because they, because they had learned generosity from God. God had been generous to them. So they were determined to be generous with each other. That's what happens when you catch the gospel, isn't it? I think the Lord is determined to make me generous, but I, I fight that all the time. See, I, to be honest, I look at the phrase in Acts about they're selling all their possessions. I'm like, is this supposed to be mandated? Is this mandated? Is there an out clause here? Is this, uh, if you're that kind of guy, you do that. But, but what's in the text is simply, they saw Jesus. They came to know Jesus. And they looked at the cross and saw it as his generosity to wretched sinners and thought, he poured himself out for me. I'm going to pour myself out for others. And I see that connection and know, oh, Lord, <laughs> you're soft. You, you need to soften me. Make me generous like this, please, Lord. The more we see how generous God has been to us in Jesus, the more natural and wonderful it becomes to practice generosity I'm not the greatest at practicing it but there are some in this place who have practiced generosity to me and my family in wonderful ways I remember Pastor Ron showing up just before Christmas my very first year here I'd been working part time at Starbucks because I had resigned from a, a ministry position in Vancouver and we just felt like we were supposed to come to Chilliwack and we did and we you know Emily and I we, we, Boston was a baby we weren't buying gifts for each other and we feeling really miserable about ourselves. And Ron showed up with an envelope just before Christmas and said, here, somebody in the church sold something. Wanted me to give it to you. And we opened this envelope just before Christmas. We're like, no. Like, these sorts of stories happen to missionaries far away. You know, they don't happen to us. Sort of that exact dollar amount you kind of needed to survive. <laughs> Blown away. 
the generosity of the people in this place. You know what? You just know, ah, that person, that's a, that was a generous gift. That person knows Jesus. The more, ge- the more we see how generous God has been in Jesus, the more generous we become. I need to see more of the generosity of Jesus. Many of you do too. Next, they broke bread. The breaking of bread. There's two interpretations on this. It sounds very official. The breaking of bread and the prayers is the language. The breaking of bread. So many people interpret this. Many scholars would say the breaking of bread here means the communion service. It's the Lord's Supper. Others would say, well, it's actually just it's tied into to fellowship. And they, just, they, they, they had meals together in their homes. I, I think it's both. I think it's official language here. And I think there's the reference to... Um, the, the communion meal, but, but certainly the, we, we see in the text that they're also meeting in homes together as well. So if it's the first, it's a, it's a continuation of the previous word, fellowship, that includes meals together. Look at verse 46. It all adds up. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. See, what this verse shows us is, and, and, and Pastor Gary touched on it, life groups are at the core of community here. See, we're gathered to get together like the early Christians in mass at the temple courts. We're gathered here and in agassiz to meet and to worship Jesus together and to have community together. But we also value the midweek meeting together in homes. We can have conversations on the couch and around the dinner table that we just can't have in the foyer. It's tight, it's cramped, there's usually a toddler pulling on one of the person's legs and juice is spilling. And, right? it's just, you can have a quick conversation, but there's different conversations that can happen when we gather in the home, on the couch, around the table, breaking bread, <laughs> fellowshipping. And that's certainly what was going on here. Uh, my wife Emily and I went to a, a seminar in, in Vancouver a few weeks ago and uh, there was a woman there who was speaking and she talked about uh, her practice with her husband was every Sunday they just opened their home and the church knew about it. Every Sunday their church was o- their house was open and they never quite knew who would come. Maybe it would be some neighbors who didn't know Jesus. Um, maybe it would be some some friends, maybe it would be some people from the church, but, but what she found was that they consistently opened their homes on Sunday afternoons and evenings and they would have some sort of food. They'd see how many people showed up and then they'd improvise and they'd go with it. Sometimes the house would be absolutely packed out to the yard and sometimes it would be small, um, but they would meet together. And you know what happens is some people were going through crisis and they knew, I can show up, the home's open. Some people were feeling really lonely on their own but, but we're a church, and, and she recognized her church was church, and it was the people, and so their home was open, and lonely people would come and just have fellowship with others. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. See, I planted a seed there. Anybody notice that? Planting a seed. Just put that out. It's there. I'm going to move on now. But... There's also the breaking of bread. We do know that the earliest church ate together in homes. And, and look, when they gathered in the temple courts, 
Um, it wasn't the place where they could break bread, but Jesus command, he said, do this in remembrance of me, as he broke the bread and he poured the wine. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so the place that the early church could do that was in the home, so communion was taking place, and, and, and typically the patriarch of the home who, who sat at the table would just, at one point in the meal, just stand up and say the prayers and break the bread and pour the wine, and they would have communion together. I believe it's both. I mean, in, in this package of verses here, both of these things are happening. And we do that. I mean, it's one of the marks we just talked about. This earliest church met in the temple court, likely the large area called the Court of the Gentiles, where thousands of people could gather. The meeting in homes at, at, at that point in time would have been the context the earliest church participated in the Lord's Supper together. And it's both. We, we gather here on Sundays and we, we encourage you to gather midweek for community and fellowship there. Lastly, in this, this run of, of, of things in, in verse 42 of what they devoted themselves to, it's the prayers. Prayer is, is most simply just communication with God. Some, some people would say prayer is talking to God, but I don't, it's too one way, isn't it? Prayer is communication with God. Communication lines are open. It's the gathering and uh, here, though, in this context, it's, it's, they devoted themselves to, and it's corporate. We like to individualize it and say, okay, I'm going to devote to teaching, so I'll listen to a podcast. I'm going to devote to fellowship, so I'm going to get together with a couple friends who view everything the same way I do, and we'll really affirm each other. It'd be great. And, and, and breaking bread, well, I'll have only my favorite people over, and that's who I'll have meals with. And then prayer, well, I'll pray. That's not the context of Acts 2.42. This is what the church did. This is the function of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were devoted to these things. So that even in the prayers here, we're talking corporately. It's the gathering and praying for his protection of the church, the flourishing of the church, the deepening of discipleship, the softening of our hearts to Jesus and his bride. It's the asking that people come to know him. It's the requesting of God to do what only God can do, devoting ourselves to prayer on Friday I, I came in to finish this, and uh, uh, an elderly woman, who I won't name her, lives in a building right behind us here. She folds your bulletins for you every Friday, and one of my favorite sights is seeing her uh, and Andrew sitting at that table folding our bulletins for us. And we just got talking about prayer, which normally happens with this wonderful woman, because she's a woman who prays. We talk about prayer. And she says, I love that I live where I can see the church. Why is that? Well, because, you know, I, I see the cars gathering and the young people coming out of their cars. So, so I just know something's happening. I'm going to pray. She looks at me. I pray for you. I pray for the leaders of this church. I pray for our church. I just think, oh, I know, I know why the Lord is gracing us with you. We need your prayers. I know I do. Do you not love that? We have a woman who lives in the building right behind you. Every time she sees cars gather, is praying prayers for her church. We see something corporate and formal to this. This the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is a reference to God's family actively submitting themselves to the Lord's direction. This is a reference to worship in which 
people got together and were seeking and praising God. Yesterday morning, all of our worship ministry people, all those who could make it, were here. Uh, our techs, our musicians, our singers, our worship leaders, we all got together. And part of what we did yesterday morning was pray for the year ahead. See, these are people who lead your music and run the technical, but these are worshipers. What we love about the worship ministry here is we, we say this phrase all the time, we're worshipers of Jesus first, leaders of songs second. So when you see the people who come up on this stage, these are people who love to worship Jesus. It's their heartbeat. It's what they do. It's how they live. They come up here and it just makes sense. It's the overflow of praises. But we gather because these are people who love to worship Jesus and we spent time praying for this year ahead. Just small groups of your worship teams gathering yesterday to pray for you that God would move mightily. That's what's happening here. Devoting themselves to the prayers. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, the Apostle Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So we can do some work. I can preach. You can lead how you lead and serve how you serve and we can all go about doing that. But at the end of the day, it's God who gives the the growth. You know what that means? We had better be a church devoted to prayer that his will be done, that his spirit move, because our work, as faithful as it might be, gets us nowhere until we're a people of prayer who give ourselves to the Lord's direction where he's going, submit ourselves to it, ask that he move with power, and then watch joyfully as it happens and he answers those prayers. There's a story, I may have told it here before, but in 1858, during the Great Awakening Revival, which you always have to trace revivals back to prayer, this is the sort of thing that took place. Let me read it to you. A schoolboy in class became so troubled about his soul that the schoolmaster sent him home. An older boy, a Christian, went with him, and before they had gone far, the older boy led the younger boy to Christ. Returning at once to school, this new convert testified to his teacher, Oh, I am so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. These simple words had an astonishing effect. Boy after boy rose silently and left the room. Going outside, the teacher found these boys all on their knees in a row along the wall of the playground. Very soon their silent prayer became a bitter cry. It was heard by another class inside and pierced their hearts. They fell on their knees and their cry for mercy was heard in turn by a girl's class above. In a few moments the whole school was on their knees. Neighbors and passers-by came flocking in and as they crossed the threshold they all came under the same convicting power. Every room was filled with men, women, and children seeking God. I hope that stirs your soul. We cannot look at these verses in the Bible and, 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 and Luke, the writer proclaiming, and the Lord added to their number daily something that was time sensitive. It happened in 1858. Why not today and why not in Chilliwack? Amen? May we give ourselves to the prayers. May we seek the Lord and the flourishing of this body and the flourishing of our community for his glory that souls would come to Christ. Do you have a burden for that? Would you pray to that end? You know, something we're striking up this year again 
Pastor Gary and, 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 and Ron Van Acker went to a, a seminar where they were blown away by a church that gathered and prayed. And, and Pastor Gary came back and said, we have to, we have to start our, our worship and prayer gatherings again. And so in October and then in January and March and May, we're, we're beyond life groups, beyond Sundays, beyond individually, we're gathering to pray we're going to have these nights to simply worship and pray. And so look for those as they come because we believe our foundation is Jesus. The moving of the Spirit is His doing. We want to give ourselves to what He would do in this place for His glory. Lastly, finally, we look at the witness of the church. But see, the witness of the church is actually all of the above. It's nothing really different. If we believe in if we're faithful to the marks of the church, if we believe our nature, who we are in Christ as the church, and if we function as we are to function as the church, our witness will go forward. I mean, Jesus summarizes in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. I mean, he's summarizing all of this. We're to make disciples. We're to teach all that Jesus commanded. Well, what did he command? It's the gospel. We're to proclaim that. People are to be baptized. We're to go. See, but when we're faithful, when we, when we do all of these, these things, when we live out of our nature, we will share Jesus. When we live out of our nature as royal priests, we invite people to be a part of this chosen, holy nation there's, there's, there's witness in that. When we function as a church that's healthy, that lives and submits itself to God's word in the teaching that fellowships well, a bunch of diverse people with Jesus in common that know how to celebrate together. That's unique. That preaches. Breaking bread together, opening homes, generous to those in need, and praying that God would move mightily that is the witness of the church. It is its witness. Look at how 1 Peter 2, the verse we were looking at, verse 9, ends. Look at this passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, how it ends. Uh, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. There's this proclamation, it's the witness. It comes with who we are. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. These people, this church, were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. They went about being faithful. The Lord went about transforming lives. That's his work. Being faithful to the marks, understanding our nature, and practicing our function will give us joy, unity, passion, and witness. I love the church. I pray, especially as we look this week and next week at, at the church, and it, it, people's love for it is dwindling. May we be people who love the church and love this church. God's grace to us that we can gather and edify one another, that we can submit to these things together, that we can call each other out, raise each other up. We must be a part of this church. And can I tell you sincerely, I love this church. I love you. You've been gracious to me. I hope you found me to be gracious to you. 
I pray our fellowship would only deepen this year. Can we do that together? Amen, amen. Let's have the worship team come up and let's praise his name. And then we get to fellowship. We're not going to send you to the parking lot. Well, we are going to send you to the parking lot, but to, to stay in the parking lot and eat food, okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I, my heart is full this morning because I love what you've been doing here. I love who you've gathered here. Lord, you are doing wonderful things. Thank you for your grace, Lord, in this place, in our lives, in my life. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you gather. I love the picture of the church being a body with many members. I thank you for the contributions of fingers and toes and legs and knees and arms. And Lord, I thank you that together we are this beautiful mosaic that have you in common and all have ways to serve you. I praise you for your church. Would our belief in your longing to use it in a broken world sink deep into our hearts. May we be for your bride. Otherwise, how can we be for the groom? So, Father, we love you. We love Jesus. We love his bride. Now we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.